is a researcher specializing in intelligence agency involvement in multiple assassinations, propaganda, and other global criminal operations in the 20th and 21st centuries. Your listeners are extremely fortunate to have you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media. Chuck O'Kelly! January 28, 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And yes, indeed, every time before I go to air, I have to double-check the date no matter what I'm doing. So here we are live on the Ocelli Effect. It is a Thursday, Thursday, the one, two, three, four, fourth broadcast day of the week. And uh, we are going to continue a series tonight with Larry Hancock. I'm going to call this the Larry Hancock Collection. Hopefully, uh, based on your complaints and emails, I have my uh, sound balanced correctly tonight. We shall soon see because Larry Hancock is the guest. And we are in only the second episode. It's going to be a few, folks. <laughs> so, and, and there may indeed be a need to split one of these books into two episodes. I, I I was thinking about that earlier today, but we'll get there when we get there. Still on the section, the subsection about what? The national security state, national intelligence. I, I know Larry had a great subdivision for one of the two sections, the two subsets of the subset. Uh, but either way, we're going to get right to it. Enough out of me, and I'm not going to talk about the news of the day, even though I want to. And tomorrow night, uh, I'll tell you about uh, firefighting and burn victims here in Georgia. But that is a story for another day. First off, Larry Hancock, the author, Larry-Hancock.com is his website. Go there, check out his work. Obviously, you can find all of his books on Amazon.com. You'll see them sometimes listed here, including uh, the latest one that I know of anyway, In Denial. Uh, that's the latest physical book. Now, there's this whole other thing coming together at the MaryFarrell.org uh, website over there and we'll get to that one too. <laughs> so a lot of stuff, a lot of works by Larry Hancock, including, oh, well, let's see, Nexus. How about Unidentified? How about uh, The Awful Grace of God? Now, some of these things he co-authored and maybe we'll get Stu Wexler to join in on some of these conversations because he's the co-author on some of these books that Larry has written. But meanwhile, tonight's focus once again is Shadow Warfare, which by the by, Larry, in, in my opinion, was one of the best titles I ever saw on a book coming from somebody like you or anybody else. I love the concept. It is at the same time esoteric and practical. Uh, it is <laughs> uniquely and uh, adequately titled. Um, and, and I, I really appreciated the title and even the design of the book uh, uh, jacket on that one because it, it looks like what it looks like. Uh, you know, without pasting a whole bunch of uh, well-known figures from the past, let's say, all over your cover and that kind of thing, where, you know, people just, it looks like somebody uh, threw up a collage on their book cover. No, tasteful-looking book cover, and you will see the image of it in uh, tonight's show notes and also with the uh, graphic for the show. And if you don't have a copy of it, I I, I definitely read mine more than once. So um, it's been a couple of years so I'll need a refresher. And last week when we covered surprise attack, last comment I'm going to make here, uh, Larry explained that uh, sort of surprise attack and shadow warfare are companions. And that makes a lot of sense, except that, well, there is a difference. So let's talk about it. Larry, first, though, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine, Chuck. Just uh, hanging in there, anticipating getting vaccinated for covid uh, with great anticipation, but 
remaining distant regardless <laughs> because that's where we are. <laughs> well, there, there, there's that. But, you know, if you lived in Georgia, you wouldn't have to worry about anything because nothing works here. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, uh, except that we have the, uh, you know, we have the Congress lady who's uh, totally uh, cutarded. But, I mean, outside of that, no headline news here or anything. Uh, all right. Anyway, again, I'm not going to get into the events of the day. <laughs> <laughs> because I want to talk about the history, and and who knows, seems like um, your books become more timely as time goes on. So uh, it's it's fascinating to me, of course, Shadow Warfare, knowing some of the history that you were going to cover in that book just by the title, and uh, then actually honestly examining what it is we could learn about what's going on. Well, right now, Larry, huh? So yeah. I- yeah. I wish that they would become more dated. I really do. I, you know, because I originally write them as history and then try to draw some assessments and complete, you know, how, why does it come out like this all the time? And do we have to get stuck in this rut? And I'll, I just can't understand because three or four years after I write them, we do the same thing yet again. So it, uh, I actually wish they were more history and less contemporary, Chuck. Well, and I'll tell you another thing I wish they would do is some of these uh, news agencies that start using your phrases years after you print them uh, would be nice if they came around and asked you to talk about it. You know, like Creating Chaos, I found that one funny. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going away from the current book, but, you know, that, that we are discussing tonight, but I found that hilarious that it seemed like every talking head on almost every news network out there started talking about the, uh, well, the skill of creating chaos. And I went, well, gee, isn't that Larry Hancock's book from like, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago now? <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, but okay. Shadow warfare. Uh, if only I could get royalties. Oh, really? So, all right, again, back to the focus. Shadow warfare, right? And and believe me, Larry, I'm not correcting you. If you want to talk about anything, I'll talk to you about uh, the dog track. You know, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, but fact is, I, I want to get into this because just from the title alone, um, maybe you could explain about the title and once again reiterate what you were talking about last week about surprise attack and this sort of uh, uh, coalescing simultaneously in your research and in your work um, and, and give people an idea about a, why the book is titled the way it is uh, and you know what that phrase means in a practical sense. And to me, I don't know, almost a, a poetic and esoteric at the same time, which is not something I normally expect from you. Uh, but I thought shadow warfare was a great title. Did you come up with it or did somebody else come up with it or was it just the, the only title you could think of for the book? <laughs> now, now you've found my secret. It probably doesn't sound like me because my wife came up with it. Ah, uh, okay. We have a pact. She doesn't read and edit my books. However, we do talk about them and you know, after I describe what I'm doing, we do talk about the title and that's as far as it goes. But that, yeah, that's, that's hers, no doubt about it. Uh, so your wife is the more um, poetic writer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, ah, yes. okay. She, she could be writing. She could write fiction quite well. Uh, me, I pretty just straight factual, so it's better that I'm doing history. 
Well, you know, it, one one could say that's a lack of imagination, or one could say that's an extremely disciplined mind that doesn't decide to interject fiction into some of the fantastic things that you wind up, uh, well, having to unearth as you uh, put these things together. So, okay, your wife gave it the title, but it is a perfectly apt and also uh, a provocative title in my mind. I know there's a million books out there, but again, when you're talking about shadow warfare, it evokes a lot of imagery. So let's talk about how you start off the book and uh, what the basis is, because every one of Larry's books, by the way, it's not as though, I mean, I'm putting together a series on this, but every one of his books basically stands alone. You don't require the other books. I mean, I advise you to get them, <laughs> but you're not like lost if you open up Shadow Warfare and you're not lost if you open up, uh, you know, uh, well, Creating Chaos. You're, you're not lost. You, you have a way of beginning these books. So I'd like to talk about how you open the book, if you don't mind, and uh, explain to us, you know, what the, uh, the, the concept or the thesis is effectively. Oh, sure. And I, I think to understand how to get into shadow warfare, just, just a little bit of backstory. We talked about surprise attack last week. This week we're talking about shadow warfare. Mm -hmm. Both of those books were generated by questions that occurred to me after I had done my books on the JFK assassination. Uh, those took me deeply into several areas. And one of the questions that I had to ask myself is, did we see something unique there and, and what happened after the Kennedy assassination? Or, you know, was it anomalous? Is this, you know, what's the history of this? Was it unique or not? And that led me to a, a lengthy study of surprise attacks, national security, and what the response was. And that, that produced surprise attack. In this case, mm -hmm. uh, my early books led me to explore the lives and careers of a number of figures within the CIA, the the earliest covert operators in the CIA, the, the people that called themselves the cadre, the people that really established the practice of covert warfare uh, for the United States, whether it was regime change or, you know, ousting one government, putting in another, uh, blocking the expansion of a targeted uh nation, you know, keeping out communism, whatever they were doing, they they were doing it in the shadows with utter deniability. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the U.S. was fighting the Cold War, uh, and they were fighting the Cold War with not just political action, but paramilitary actions. So in in exploring some of these people, it became fascinating to me as to how they really did – a, how did they do that? How did they get recruited? How did they conduct the operations? Mm -hmm. Especially since, and, and you'll, you know, it fascinated me that some of the characters that were so seminal in those early years were characters that nobody knew about. In fact, they would be characters in later years that the CIA denied ever work for them. You know, that they, that they had ever been an employee or they had ever been an asset and, so they had no real historical existence. You could, you could, uh, David Morales being one of them that, you know, we've talked about, you, you could lo go look at his, uh, his tombstone. You could look at his obituary and there was no sign that he'd ever been anything 
other than a non-com in the army has. But yet he ended up as a consultant to the Joint Chiefs of Staff after decades of covert military operations and covert intelligence work. You know, a, a real senior figure, uh, comparable to to names that you would know from the CIA, like a Howard Hunt or, you know, some, someone like who made headlines. But you never heard of someone like David Morales. So I, I really wanted to get a handle about the careers of those people, what they did in reality, and, and how it worked. Because it just, it fascinated me that the United States waged decades of, call it deniable warfare, shadow warfare, doing things that involved actually major military actions, which they totally denied at the time, which was denied in Congress. Not, you know, it's, we just denied we were there. We weren't doing that. So how in the world did that work? How did they make it? I mean, I'm not saying it worked pragmatically, but how did they conduct it in a way to cover themselves, which led me into shadow warfare, which was a study of how they did that, basically. What covers were used? How did they, how did they cover up the financing? How did they cover up the armaments, the shipments, the logistics, the recruiting? How did they, how did they cover up the fact that in many instances there was relatively large scale support by the American military? I mean, ranging from airdrops to submarine and naval actions. How, how did they go about doing all of that? Well, um, well let me ask you to, to, to do something. Now, again, I never script this stuff, and I gave no Larry no preparation other than we were going to discuss shadow warfare. Uh, so so here I go with it with my unfair uh, uh, presentation. <laughs> um, let's take something that people know a lot about, and I think this would be a, an excellent example and something that I don't hear you speak about very often, uh, but you obviously have had to have studied, which would be the, the overthrow of Mosaddegh in Iran, uh, and the, the program that was used to do this, right? Um, now this encompassed a lot of different elements. And, uh, I, I, I think is, is an excellent example of what you'd have to cover in Shadow Warfare, given what you just laid out, and I think would be a, a, a great example to take apart for Somebody listening who's very used to hearing Larry talk about, you know, the 60s and, yeah, the David Morales's and anybody who's involved, you know, the anti-Castro-Cuban thing and the, all that. Bay of Pigs. All right, fine. How about the Mosaddegh overthrow? Uh, what, what, what do you have to say about that regarding the practices and, you know, the interesting elements that come together, some of the players who we know, uh, some of the players that have become, you know, famously attached to it, like Kermit Roosevelt. Uh, you know, the, the actions that took place there, obviously it was a multi-layered operation. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind if you talk about that because that's another thing that you didn't actually mention is the propaganda operations that, uh, that sometimes take place. And there's a key example uh, of what that looks like, right? So here we go. What, what do you, what do you have to say about, uh, the, the overthrow of Mosaddegh in Iran? And, uh, the later installation, uh, or reinstallation of the family, which, uh, you know, the father was the deposed king. Shah means king. The Shah of Iran was a king. Uh, being reintroduced into the equation, there's a lot there to, uh, well, to dig around in, Larry. Yes? 
Oh, there is. And I, I, but let me set that up by saying the way that I approached this was that there are two types of shadow warfare. Okay. One is strictly or largely political. The other is largely paramilitary where you have, you know, actually combat air, ground, sea, whatever. So shadow warfare deals with the paramilitary side. Actually, in my book, Creating Chaos, I deal with the political action side. The two operations that were seminal, that essentially after the Cold War got the U.S. into the business of covert action and shadow warfare, were the regime change in Iran and the opposition and the the military effort to divert the Chinese – during the Korean War, which led to large-scale invasions of southern China, which were organized and initiated by the CIA. So shadow warfare actually starts with the roots of paramilitary action, which is in Burma, in Southeast Asia, whereas creating chaos starts with the roots of political warfare, which is in Iran. And Uh in creating chaos, I talk about the Iranian action in great detail, and so I I can talk about that here, but that's why you won't find it in Shadow Warfare as I covered it somewhere else. Um, Largely, again, because the one of the big differences, and there's one commonality between those two operations. In Burma, the United States was actually working in tandem with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese and enabling them. They were partners in this effort to create a southern front in China. In Iran, actually, the Iranian regime change was a cooperative effort by Britain and the United States. Mm -hmm. And Britain actually began the effort. Britain began blockading Iran, uh, setting themselves up with revolutionary groups, They were on the ground already because of their oil connections, and we kind of followed along behind them. And in the end, you you can probably say we were co-partners because one of the things I look at are the national security dialogues, which come down to the point of even in, in, in our National Security Council, the people deciding that they were going to follow Britain's lead initially. We had actually opposed uh, Britain and Iran because the big argument was the British absolutely refused to give up any kind of control over the oil fields, operating them, managing them, uh, personnel selection. It wasn't just fine. They, they literally refused to t- turn over oil production to the Iranians, and that was at the crux of the problem. Then they got into – it wasn't just about, you know, rates, fees, money. It was about uh, essentially what you would call nationalization. Uh, after the war, the Iranians figured, you know, it's our land, it's our oil, we want to run it, and we'll partner with you. And the British, in all honesty, treated them more <laughs> in the colonial vein than anything else. And so there got to be a a major nationalist movement inside Iran to 
take the British out of the equation as running the oil fields. Um, the U.S. actually supported Iran in its early negotiations with Britain. But Britain came back and said, look, we need you guys on your side. It's very similar to what happened in Indochina. At that period of time, under John Foster Dulles and, and his, his approach, the approach was that Europe is important. Uh, maintaining our links to Britain and France, stabilizing their new governments is critical to stopping Soviet expansion across Europe. And so whatever we do, um, these colonial issues are not our first issue. Yeah, it's a pain. The British and French should not be trying to maintain their colonial status as they did before. But when they call on us, we still are going to have to support them because Europe is more important than anything they're doing in Iran or Indochina. Okay. So over a period of about three years, we got sucked into regime change in Iran. Okay, now, if you could do me a favor, contrast the public face of this versus what we know post-mortem, because there was definitely a public presentation here which did not represent the idea that, hey, you know, we're involved in this and that and the third thing. And, of course, the switching of sides, I mean, <clears throat> even when we talk about Fidel Castro, at first the U.S. was kind of supportive of Castro <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, and then not so much. And, hey, you know, there's a guy named Saddam Hussein that uh, kind of had U.S. support and then didn't. You know, I, I mean, just saying, th there are things going on here. And I think it's important to recognize that what the public knows at the time is not necessarily even remotely close <laughs> to what it is we learn later. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of juxtaposition the, the two things a little bit. And uh, give people an idea, because you obviously had to study the public pronouncements uh, about oh, yeah. these things. So, yeah, please. And one of them in particular is is fascinating because it provides the entree into, generally speaking, the type of covers that the CIA and State Department used throughout the Cold War since it began in Iran early on. So bottom line, as as – we shifted our position and decided we were going to have to align ourselves with Britain rather than Iranian nationalism. Why would we do that? I mean, you've got to justify it to the public. It's right. like, you know, you can't just come out and say, well, we've decided, you know, all these people, these third world countries were our allies fighting the, uh, you know, the bad guys, but now we don't really care about them. Can't say that. Um, so what we, we, changed the whole context into the context being the Soviet Union is trying to take over Iran. That will be their entree to the Middle Eastern oil fields. They will establish a communist movement inside Iran, and after they establish it inside Iran, they'll take it to Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And this is the first introduction of something that would later become called in Southeast Asia the domino theory. Right. The domino theory was introduced to justify our intervention in Iranian affairs in order to block the fall of the Middle East to the Soviets and the communism. Uh, and we, we took it a little bit further. So 
all the press and everything, it's like, why are we involved? Why are we doing this? Okay, that's the justification. It led to a fascinating article, which I dissect at great length in, in Creating Chaos. And in the article, it, it actually was written by a huge leak from the CIA, a control media leak. And the article talks about how the United States was so smart and so much in control of affairs in the world that the CIA director went to Switzerland had a meeting with the Shah's sister and kind of laid down the law. Like, okay, you people know we're right, they're wrong. She goes back to Iran and within weeks or months, the government of Iran totally rejects any outreach from the Soviets, turns around, quashes the independence movement, and the article is nothing else than a bragging piece about how effective the CIA is in world affairs. Hmm. What's, yeah. what's most interesting about it is they provided all sorts of classified information in the article so you can identify the people that were involved. It, the sort of thing never are supposed to appear in print, but... I, it appears that it was so early on and they felt in such a bragging mood that, you know, they just couldn't hold themselves back. Mm. No, is that what you were looking at? Yeah, no, that's what I was looking for. Exactly. And, and this is, uh, you know, again, one must recognize that for the next, oh, I don't know, 40 years, this would become the justification template for many overt actions and covert actions, right? Uh, uh, coming from the United States, I mean, it was like, well, we, we, we can't let the, the, the communists take over. I mean, that, that's, you know, it, whether it's Bill Clinton encircling Russia, okay, or it's, uh, the actions in Southeast Asia, or it's, I mean, it, it just all comes together as, well, it's all under that banner. We got to stop the communists, right? That's the boogeyman. So this is why we do everything. That's the template, and I think the, the fascinating thing to bring this back to shadow warfare is our public stance would always be that we are so morally right and ethically strong that we can just kind of talk to people and make them realize the errors of their ways and, you know, kind of cope with it, this global communist threat through what you might call diplomatic action, political action leveraging, leveraging our economic strength. You know, we can just talk to people and make good regimes change, stay in power, and make bad regimes go away. Hmm. And, and we're that good. Whereas in reality, other than Iran, it never worked like that again. We right. all, afterwards, we always, time after time, had to turn to military action on larger and larger scales. And I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, one of the, after the Iranian success, okay, and mm -hmm. there are two things that occurred early on in the 50s that really drove the U.S. forward with this approach to the world because they were considered such successes. Iran was considered a fantastic success by the CIA and essentially 
sold it. It sold itself to successive administrations as being like super competent by bringing this off in in Iran. Whereas, mm-hmm. uh, as I go through in my book, it was more a fluke than anything else. And the whole coup that the CIA had arranged failed, and just through a, a <laughs> certain circumstances, it did succeed, not in the way that was planned, but just almost circumstantially. But they claim this is an immense victory, and then later they would claim their success in Guatemala as extreme victories. And right. in neither case, every time they tried to repeat it, when they tried to repeat Guatemala and Cuba, it was a disaster. When they tried to repeat Iran, it was a disaster, and we just got kept getting sucked into more and more real shadow military warfare. But the point I was going to get to is they call in the fellow, the, the officer who was largely in charge of the political action in Iran. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're thinking about that we have to get involved in Guatemala again, and, and considering that you were so successful um, – you know, we're kind of give us your thoughts because we'd like you to lead this project. And I actually use the quote in the book, and, and the quote, to paraphrase, he says, don't ever do this again. Hmm. This We just happen to get lucky. Don't count on this again. If If your cause is not the cause of the people of the country, if it's not overwhelmingly popular, and if it's not supported by the military – you might as well just go ahead and call out the Marines, and if you feel you have to, invade. You know, because this was a fluke, and he understood it. And they all listened to him, and they all nodded their heads, and then he didn't get the job for Guatemala, and they just totally rejected his experience, and for the next 30 years went in a totally different direction. See now, but in the same time period, as you mentioned, you also have the Korean conflict, which... Has I, I I have never understood how any successful result was ever declared by anybody there, uh, you know because again the the general mainstream history on it is sort of I don't know ambiguous at best because <laughs> uh, because here you have a circumstance where things really did go extremely sideways and the fact that the peninsula was divided uh, was kind of like I don't know the best possible disaster you could ask for. Out of that circumstance? So talk about that a little bit. I I was just discussing this with a friend of mine, former Marine, uh, the fact that it, you know, how do we picture what was something at best to draw as a a victory? And what we learned, and and in in this case we might actually have learned from experience, I'm I'm not sure, but what we learned, if if you step back from Korea, first of all, as I mentioned, the first real covert CIA paramilitary shadow warfare was in southern China and against North Korea. And the effort in southern China was quite serious. I mean, it resulted in full-scale invasions across the southern Chinese border, um, which were immediately crushed and rebuffed. So, okay, that failed. Um, but in in Korea... During the Korean War, two things really emerged. First of all, General LeMay and SAC totally destroyed the North Korean industrial infrastructure. They bombed every target that was worth bombing. They destroyed it all. 
We did take some serious losses, but they destroyed it all. Yet because that didn't, you know, that didn't shut down the North Korean army because the Chinese and the Russians kept supplying them, right. in particular the Chinese, but also, and, and we know now, although it was really controlled at the time, uh, that the Russians were extremely involved in the defense of North Korea. Uh, a great number of the jet fighters were flown by Russian volunteers. A large number of the bombers, in particular, that were lost by the U.S., were shot down by Russians. I mean, we, we could even monitor them in their radio transmissions. They were they were very much involved in the fighting. So we weren't learned one lesson, and that is, unless we engage all these parties, um, you, we just can't take on one country who can still operate a ground force and get supplied by everybody else and win. Now, of course, we wrote that down, and again, a decade or so later in Vietnam, we forgot where we put that note, and mm -hmm. the same thing happened again. Um but the other thing we learned and the Joint Chiefs learned from the bombing, and I actually write uh, about their memos on this, they were – they became extremely concerned that atomic weapons would not be that useful in the field of battle. They were a strategic weapon, and if you couldn't use them against strategic targets, they weren't meaningful. Yet that's all we had. We had very small standing army. The only thing that created the image of our power was our atomic warfare. Yet they recommended not using atomic weapons, even when MacArthur wanted to, because they were virtually certain that that was not going to make any difference to the ground game. Mm -hmm. If they were going to use them, they would have to use them against China and Russia. Didn't want to get into that. Didn't want to go to full-scale global warfare. So you learned that just bombing wasn't good enough as long as you have third parties supporting the aggressor and you learn that atomic bombing is probably not useful against a ground force again until you can go against strategic targets so i guess the synopsis of we a stalemate was in one sense a victory because what we did to was taking a pass and going to world war three and we really learned the lesson that, you know, which, which we forgot that you can't get involved in a ground conflict where third parties are doing the supply infrastructure and win oh, well, uh, without not, going to large-scale war. Well, I was going to say without actually trying to, uh, uh, you know, him, hinder the uh, third parties directly. <laughs> and this is and what the, the problem Joint is. Chiefs had already – the, the American war plan against Russia that was conceived immediately after World War II, when, when it did look like Stalin was going to take the Red Army, which could indeed have gone to the channel in like a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. the only plan that they could come into was a strategic atomic bombing, which would have taken out the supply chain back in Russia, would have left these huge gigantic Russian armies wandering around raping and pillaging Western Europe, you know. So it, they did get a grip on what was very pragmatically what you could accomplish with atomic weapons. And it, it's 
much more limp, but we didn't want to share that. It's like, okay, Russia has a standing army 10 times what ours is, and nobody wants to stop demobilizing, and our only leverage is atomic warfare. So we've got to, we've got to make this a really big stick, and let's not talk about the downside. Mm. Kind of puts, kind of puts, uh, things in perspective. You know, on Tuesday we were talking about the, uh, dismissal of MacArthur, um, you know, by Truman and what the political ramifications were for that. See, again, you got to look at the public face of this versus the behind the scenes reality because, you know, how was that presented to the public? Uh, was there this idea that, you know what? Yeah, we, we can sit here and threaten them with the nuclear weapons, but if they call the bluff, uh, the only way to use this <laughs> is to widen the conflict. Um, and is anybody prepared to go there? That, that's, that's troublesome. And then in the meanwhile, uh, you, you have that, uh, rather impassioned speech by MacArthur, uh, you know, when he gave that. That's interesting, right? Um, and, and what goes on in public there versus what, you know, was actually happening on the ground. Always two different things, Larry. Uh, two different things. And I think, and, Without knowing both sides of the story, it's it's really easy to become opinionated one direction or the other without looking at some of the questions they were being forced to. One question that LeMay asked when MacArthur – I mean, we did move atomic weapons to the theater. Uh, under orders, LeMay did prepare an atomic bombing plan for North Korea and started – doing a lot of technical work that would enable to do that. But he also came back and said, look, I already destroyed all this stuff with conventional bombing. And by the way, once you tell me to use my 50-bomb, 100-bomb strategic stockpile in this ground war here, um, then you're going to – what do we do? We just used our entire arsenal or most of it. And by the way, I lost my aircraft doing it. Um, what exactly do we do to contain Russia? Uh, why won't, you know, this was our only, this was our only shield for Western Europe and now you used it against North Korea. Um, what are you guys going to do? So, which is a perfectly sane question. I mean, everybody likes to think of LeMay as insane all the time, mm-hmm. but to some extent it's because he asked questions that nobody else wanted to even deal with. Well, and the thing is, I think he would have went forward even with, uh, plans that he disagreed with. That, that's the other thing. You know, even if it was, uh, entirely savage to do certain things, I mean, he certainly proved earlier on in his career no problem with that. Uh, you know, see Dresden. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It would have been, generally, it's sort of like, okay, if you want me to fight, I'm going to win. And you don't, you know, you don't want to see what's going to happen. So think about this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, don't don't talk to me about the civilian casualties. If this is what yeah. you want achieved, I, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so that that's the interesting thing about LeMay. And, yeah, he's often uh, portrayed as an absolutely evil character, but really intelligent militarily um, and, and also kind of fearless because it didn't matter. He, he would do it, you know, whatever it took. Um you know, the, the two cities destroyed, I forget the other one, uh, that was bombed savagely, but I know Dresden is one I studied extensively and it was like, I cannot believe that, uh, you know, where, where, where's your war crimes now? I mean, yeah. 
and he and he was honest enough to say it. I mean, he's he's quoted it sort of like, "I did this, and yes, it was war crime, and I was ordered to do it, and I followed orders. And right. if we had lost, I would have, you know, I would have been at Nuremberg. So he he didn't have any illusions. But I will also say for those bombing of Germany, mm-hmm. uh, it's a matter of record that when when we realized that our our bombing wasn't working and he was actually at that point in time in charge of the air force that was doing the bombing mm-hmm. he called his his crews in and said you guys you're dodging the flak and because you're dodging the flak you're not hitting your target so either we do this and some of you are going down and we carry out the mission or we're just going to keep doing this and you, some of you are going to be dying anyway and on the next mission he flew lead, and they didn't vary from the bomb pass. I mean, he's the kind of guy, you, you characterize it, Chuck. It's like if you tell him to do something, he's going to do something regardless of consequences, so you really should be thinking about what you tell him to do. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, but let's move forward a little bit because uh, – and, and I kind of want to skip the stuff that's around the Kennedy administration a little bit. Skip through it quickly because – uh, again, you you covered this for various reasons, um, and and get at a couple of other uh, a couple of other instances that are covered in the book, maybe that uh, that again illustrate how this continues on. This is not just a post Cold War uh, intensity um, that sh- you know it's not like all of it was amped up. I mean, of course, some people might say, well, does that have anything to do with uh, you know the media operations? Does that have to do with uh, you know, the various disinformation campaigns that were carried out in, in other countries. And yes, it does. <laughs> but, um, but, but I'd like to, you know, kind of just give a, a really quick glance at the, I don't know, next 15, 20 years, uh, really fast if we could before we go into the next hour. Uh, sure. And I, well, I think too that we, we might touch on until you move even further towards us in time is, is first, you know, some, some engagements that people don't really talk that much about, Please, including yeah. the Congo and Angola. And a lot of people have forgotten that there were major covert actions in Africa, major shadow warfare in Af- Africa. Um, obviously, same thing in Latin America. Uh, yeah. Major covert actions in Latin America, uh, Nicaragua, uh and Nicaragua and then Afghanistan. So it does, it certainly, it continued coming forward following the same operational guidelines, basically the same covers and, and the same logistics. Um, the only difference is in some operations, uh, the military, U.S. military played more of a support role and in some operations they did not. And, and it, one of the difference being is when you had um, the Air Force flying four jet Starlifter aircraft into the Congo to provide the logistics chain to fight in Angola, things worked more efficiently than when the CIA was trying to, you know, hire third parties and freighters and, you know. So one of the big differences in any given operation, how much did the CIA use the military as compared to other operations? And 
Well, so, something else, with, something yeah. else to keep in mind here, because you, you touch on Africa, and I don't want to let let us get away without discussing Lumumba and what happened there. But also, I want to point out that as far as the American public was concerned, this was not something. You know, again, you got you got to put this in context. There was. The, the mass media, not the same thing as it is today, not even remotely close. I mean, a mention of a story about what's happening in Africa at all might occur, what, once a week? Here in the yeah. States, you might see it on the newsreel at the theater. I mean, not not much coverage for Africa at all. You, you've got almost a, a, a complete lack of... Uh, eyes as far as the uh, American public is concerned. I, I know that in some major publications like, you know, uh, the the different major newspapers, the paper of record and all that good stuff, you know, you, you might have had somebody writes an op-ed about what's going on in Africa and it's almost universally uh, ignored um, in the United States, I'm saying, right? Um, so, a lot of actions could go on there really without anybody taking notice as far as the American public, much of Europe, same thing. Um, Africa's kind of interesting in that way. And, you know, there, there is a, a curious sort of a, a story arc to what went on with Lumumba, if you don't mind. Um, you know, and maybe you could put that in a context regarding shadow warfare. Uh, sure, both. There, there are really two phases. Well, there are more than two phases in Africa, but the first, the first phase was during the Kennedy administration. It didn't involve the Congo, uh, but the second phase was later on, and it's probably much less known for whatever reason in terms of the extent of, extent of our involvement. I mean, uh, how many people know that we? actually allied ourselves with South Africa to invade Angola. Yeah, how many people even know that? There you go. But, yeah. uh, but coming coming back a little ways, um, the, the Congo was uh, – there are a lot of similarities uh, in the Congo and in Laos during the Kennedy administration. Uh, the Congo – all of these early on, I mean, quite frankly, the root of all of these – came back, back to European colonialism mm-hmm. and the rise of nationalism and the desire to to literally for the, the countries involved to take control of their own destinies and especially in regard to uh, the Congo, their natural resources, which the Belgians just were not going to give up. I mean, that just was not going to happen. Uh, the French were not going to give up. They, you know, this just... They were not going to lose their financial control over those national resources. And so that just – it's the basic conflict that we saw over and over again. And we, the United States, always interpreted those conflicts in terms of the global communist conspiracy. Right. Not that the communists weren't trying to take advantage of it, but it's something I try to point out in Shadow Warfare – Throughout the Cold War, the Soviets were always on the backside. They would they would enter as supporters of the local nation. You know, we support your independence. We support your, you know, being uh, downtrodden by these colonial powers. And you know, you even thought the United States was democratic, but no, they're not because. 
they always weigh in on the side of the former colonial powers. So right. we lost so much goodwill by doing that. It's amazing. But the the Soviets always had the easy aspect of those. We were always in the position that they, they were always supporting regime change, almost universally. They're supporting regime change and making themselves look, look like the good guys, the locals, and we're for stability and maintaining the governments and maintaining peace. And, uh, you know, so we're always <laughs> we're always on the front end of the fighting. Right. You know, the Soviets are on the back, we're on the front end of the fighting. But yeah. in Congo, bottom line is there was were a series of nationalist revolts supported by the both the Chinese communists and the Soviets. And to the extent that a lot, a lot of the local revolutionary groups got funding from them, they got some weapons, they got some advisors, that would be repeated in Angola in later years and was a constant for Africa, uh, wherever it was, Libya. And we were trying to support a transition from the colonial powers to a new nationalist government, but a friendly nationalist government, you know. Don't, we don't want them to be too radical. We want them to, you know, they're, they're the government that will leave the financial deals in place and they'll just change the, you know, civil practices, but we won't lose, we won't lose any economic influence. Um, so basically this gets into an extremely long story over about four or five years. The United Nations gets, United Nations gets involved. Um, the United States, the United Nations gets involved. The United States gets involved as a part of the United Nations. Um, basically, the rebels win over and over again and uh, gets to the point where the rebels are actually, you know, executing large numbers of Europeans. Uh, they're holding entire cities as hostages. We and the French put together a rescue mission in 1964 and go in and, and rescue hundreds of European hostages. But this, this leads to more military involvement on our part to, and introduces a CIA operation both as part of the rescue and to establish a, an air force for the national government of the Congo. Now, this leads to an interesting question I want to interject here as you tell this story, and it's real simple. Was there a difference in the behavior of the national security state during the time that Kennedy was in office? And when you're talking about 1964, obviously Kennedy's gone. Um, is there a difference before and after Kennedy is in office? Yeah. The, the big difference is Kennedy was open to the concept of neutrality, which – meant he put in position of trying to negotiate um, a joint governments, you know, governments in which all the parties participated to some extent, um, very much of a juggling act. So Something like we would case, refer to as coalition governments today. Yeah, coalition <laughs> okay. And and he, he had some success at that in Laos early on. He really did. He had some success in that in, in Indonesia and some – and even some European governments. Kennedy was willing to, to negotiate. He would even 
go so, so far as letting those coalition governments be neutral okay. between the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China. As with the assassination of Kennedy, before Kennedy and after Kennedy, we fell back into the concept of neutrality is evil. You're either on our side or you're on their side. Okay. So either we win or they win. There's no more coalition. And, of course, that leads you into more and more military action because you've got to win. Well, see, now that that was the next thing is did this was this reflected both in covert and overt operations regarding this this change where, you know, both because sometimes covert operations seem to be uh, counterintuitive to the overt plan. Right. So I'm curious if it both changed and then changed back again after his death or if there was uh, some nuance here. Yeah, I, I think the difference is Kennedy viewed covert operations as a leverage tool, mm -hmm. uh, and we saw that in Vietnam. Basically, between 1962 and 1963, he was trying to he was trying to encourage more of a of a coalition government in Vietnam, mm -hmm. even in South Vietnam to start with, between the Catholics and the DM regime. Um, and But he also understood that he had to have – he couldn't just do it in South Vietnam. He had to have some lever to try to not push back but to at least give the North you know, pause so that they stopped their revolutionary activities or didn't dial them up. I, I think it, it's safe to say he would have liked a coalition government in the South which would have become strong enough to put down the internal domestic problems in the South and move on to some kind of a broader neutrality agreement for Vietnam in general, mm. which, of course, is what Ho Chi Minh had asked Eisenhower for and didn't get. Um, that's what Kennedy – but so what's his, his only tool is, well, he decided and issued a directive – to dramatically increase covert warfare against the North. And and the, the phrasing of that, he said, they, they have to feel the pain. Right now, South Vietnam is only, they're feeling the pain of the North's action, and the North is feeling no pain whatsoever. So I'm going to actually increase shadow warfare against the North as part of this overall strategy. Right. After Kennedy's death, that was never ever on the table. It was there was there's no neutrality, there's no compromise, there's no coalition. It's either you win or we win. No, fair enough. I, I just uh, wanted that contrast in place because I do want to move on beyond that and uh, and and get into some of these other uh, uh, circumstances that that you had, end up having to cover in shadow warfare. But of course, we're we're just about at the end of the hour, so. Um, what do you think about, I mean, have we missed anything pretty much as far as setting the table for the rest of this discussion in your mind or? You know, we, we haven't missed it, but I'm not even sure there, there's a whole, one of the things I try to deal with in the book is not only how does shadow warfare work, like I said, the covers, the, mm -hmm. the military support, but a lot of the real legal issues, I, I mean, these never get discussed. It never gets discussed. To what extent we tell American citizens to go out and do illegal things, to kill people, to smuggle, to do all of these things that are illegal, 
domestically and what what that puts them under what are the risks to them what allows them to do this what when they do it um why aren't they prosecuted you know you're not at war so you're not protected by a military code of justice a lot of what i go into is that aspect of the book what this really means for the people that participate in cohort warfare what what risk does it put them under what are the laws that are involved what are the the agreements that are done between the Justice Department and the CIA to let them do assassination. I mean, you know, again, you're not at war. So if I'm a CIA officer and I go organize an assassination and people get killed, I should be legally liable. What keeps me from being prosecuted? Um, well, yeah, because I, I don't in, know. In Nicaragua with the Contras, what kept all those people from being prosecuted, really? Well, see, I would ask the same question about El Salvador later. You know, yeah. uh, wh- wh- where well, are the... Good. That That's just one big aspect of the book that I don't know that we would time, have time to cover here, but I that I did address and try to dig through. It's kind of like you were saying, you know, what goes on behind the scenes that allows this to happen, uh, even legally? Uh, and so that is a big part of the book, and that... I don't know that I've ever seen anybody cover that sort of stuff in regard to shadow warfare. Well, listen, we, we can we can do that in the next hour without a problem because, uh, quite frankly, I think it's extremely fascinating. It's not just assassination that takes place here. But, I mean, quite frankly, there are others who have uh, stated that uh, strategic drug trafficking – uh, and other, uh, forms of terrorism that don't necessarily revert, you know, uh, uh, result in assassination have been, uh, undertaken by individuals and no responsibility has ever been ascribed to uh, a great many people for doing uh, a great deal of harm, destroying infrastructure, uh, spreading disease. I, I don't know what you would call that, even if people don't die. Um, <clears throat> lots of different things have been done like this in, in the name of shadow warfare. One way or another, uh, over the many decades and, you know, there, there's no clean hands when it comes to, uh, American intelligence. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, when, when we're talking about, oh, just about every horror show you can look at. Uh, you know, again, you want to talk about the Contras? Sure, we can talk about them. We can also talk about, you know, the death squads all over Central and South America, you know, trained, supplied, um, Again, you know, there, there are full-on uh, uh, cartels that were effectively founded by intelligence operatives. <laughs> um, you know, what, what damage does that do? Is there any liability that somebody gets, you know, handed sometime? Well, occasionally. But it does seem as though the Justice Department never bothers to uh, prosecute anybody. It does seem as though nobody's ever taken the task. Nobody's ever demoted. Uh, I don't know. It just seems that way to me, Larry, but maybe I'm wrong. If if anybody does happen, if anybody is listening that happens to have the book, <laughs> I cover that in a couple of chapters. One's called Risky Business, which is Chapter 20, and the other is called It Happens, which is Chapter 21, which primarily digs into the drug issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not saying you don't touch on it, but what I'm saying is a lot of people don't even think about this stuff. That- oh, absolutely. Not. And, and how they get away. I mean, the point is, and what we discuss is, these people are doing something illegal that we have made legal. Right. Right. I mean, look, I, I, I know I'm, I'm sure you had to uh, uh, have read a couple of other authors on this kind of stuff who focus on it. 
uh, you know, Doug Valentine being one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, you know, it, it is almost insurmountable to try and uh, uh, digest the multiple levels that the uh, the drug profiteering has gone on in the name of, guess what, a lot of covert action where not only is it about the monetary exchange, you know, people point to that. Uh, the monetary exchange. Well, the drug money went to go buy weapons and nah, but there's also a destabilizing thing that goes on here that is encouraged and allowed even the DEA agents who are, guess what, supposed to be stopping the international importation of this stuff. Yeah, some of them are allowed to participate. And I don't know. I've never seen major prosecutions of these guys, really. I mean, not, well, not, go ahead. And there, there's a reason, and we can discuss why you haven't seen it, but it's interesting because this kind of mirrors what we were just talking about, Chuck, in regard to LeMay and atomic warfare. It gets back to if you make a decision to do this, you have to accept the consequences. Oh, right. Or you really shouldn't be doing it. It's, it's all about consequences. There are always consequences. So if I tell this guy who's – an American citizen and a thoroughly legal individual, and I give him a thoroughly legal order to go out and do something that creates – well, anyway, we can talk about that. You know, the real question in my mind is not that he goes and does it. It's did you not know what was going to happen, and why did you – you know, was it worth it? No, absolutely. And we're going to go to a break right now, Larry, but we're going to continue to discuss shadow warfare in the next hour. And hopefully we'll get to uh, El Salvador. We'll get to uh, Panama, maybe. We'll get to a couple of other places where, guess what? This is in play as well. And it's not, oh, it is a deep topic and uh, very interesting that you have it in the, in the book. I'm glad that we mentioned the fact that you cover these other consequences Maybe not so many consequences that are realized for various operators. But anyway, stick around. This uh, special section with Larry Hancock will continue as we discuss shadow warfare on the Ocelli Effect. We'll be right back. Your snowflake ass got kicked at that peaceful protest last night. You ain't seen nothing yet. Ocelli.com. Wall Street Gold. Silver. The stock market. Wall Street Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now.
In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. The second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now here at Ocelli.com. Do appreciate you for tuning in no matter who you are, where you are, when you are indeed, because you're most, most, excuse me, most likely, uh, catching this further on down the stream by your fondle slab of choice, your applicable application, your podcatcher du jour, and no matter where, when, who, welcome to it. We are in the second hour of a discussion with Larry Hancock about, uh, well, Shadow Warfare, one of his books, and one of the many books by Larry Hancock. You can go over to Larry-Hancock.com, check out his many works for sure, and his blog if you like. Uh, and, and I do every now and then, gotta say, <laughs> and uh, always happy to do so. But this is kind of a special series where uh, we are indeed on, uh, you know, episode two or book two, if you will, and... Um, we are in the national security subset of the subset from the Larry Hancock collection. If you're not confused, good. Uh, anyway, it'll be in the show notes, I assure you. The link to uh, get the book we're discussing tonight along with uh, Larry's website and all that will be in the show notes. And since we are discussing Shadow Warfare, you know, uh, to continue on, let's move it along. Because during the break, Larry mentioned to me, and uh, th- this is the funny thing. It's not always the mustache-twisting evil villain trying to figure out how they can wreck somebody else's life, kill civilians, deal drugs, assassinations. No, it, it's it's not, you know, people getting wide-eyed over that because they're just agents of chaos like the Joker in a Batman movie. But sometimes there are fairly good intentions, that are undertaken by, well, political figures you know, and covert figures some of you know, and um, sometimes, you know, the, the, the best intentions altogether pave the road to hellish things. And I think that's worthy of discussion, Larry. So where should we begin on that? Because I did mention, I want to talk about El Salvador. Uh, you talked about Nicaragua. <coughs> Nicaragua is a, a very interesting circumstance and as our regimes change over here you see well some interesting mistakes undertaken by individuals who maybe had good intentions in mind where 
They were trying to support the people of a nation who might have been oppressed and so on and so forth, but didn't necessarily turn out that way. But let's talk about the shadow war aspects of that. Shadow warfare, again, book by Larry Hancock. Larry, where should we begin? Well, I, I think we we can extend the whole concept of – we talked about the domino theory coming up. For, the first place that it evidenced itself was in, in Iran, Iraq. Saudi Arabia, the the argument that if we didn't maintain the existing regimes, the long-standing regimes, essentially the colonial regimes, right. in the in that part of the world, that the Soviets and global communism would take over. So, you know that that was the first time that argument was used, and and we bought that. Uh, the next time it was used was in uh, Southeast Asia with Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, and, mm-hmm. and we bought that, okay? Um, and the next time, well, it, it was used, of course, in the Congo as well. We talked about that. There's always an argument if, you know, if they take over the, made, the country that has the most natural resources and the biggest economic clout, then everybody else will just top it. Well, okay. they'll get a foothold in the region, on the continent, whatever, and communism will spread like a virus. And okay, right. So, so it's almost like you can just hop, skip, and jump around the world and and find where that rears its head again. Mm-hmm. And in Latin America, the place we haven't talked about yet, you know, certainly Cuba was a primary example of that early on. But but, and we we failed there, but Cuba stayed, and it, it's safe to say that the Cuban Revolution did continue to inspire anti-colonial, anti-Yankee, if you will, um, movements, uh, basically agricultural movements uh, to, to free up a lot of the land that was controlled by just a very few people. Agriculture reform was a big part of the Cuban movement, and it was, it was a real seller in much of Latin America. And so we find Central America, South America, especially Central America. So we we do find post Kennedy and post Nixon, we you know there was even when you get to the Clinton administration, which is oh well, Clinton administration is democratic. They must be leftist. They must be liberal. Uh, but strangely enough, we find the roots of what was going to go terribly bad in Central America in. The fact that Clinton was forced to deal with movements that were intended to overthrow, and and they were largely driven out of Cuba, overthrow governments in Central America uh, and do away with regimes where we had had good, not just good political relations, but excellent economic relations for centuries or more. And... The way that always gets translated is, well, it's not just nationalism and it's not just politics. You know, this is going to really take a hit on many of our major corporations. It's going to be going to have an – I mean, we've heard that story before. So it's it's not just political. It's economic too. So Carter moved to deal with some of the problems in – excuse me – El Salvador. And, okay. and the promise at that point early on was one of the most exposed parts of the, the economy 
was their agriculture. And the communist, avowedly communist rebels were wrecking havoc on uh, their agriculture. They were burning, destroying uh, fields and were launching massive, massive efforts to bring pressure on the central government by threatening the nation's agriculture. Well, see, another so, word, uh, another word I haven't heard you use very much, although it is very much in play, uh, while we discuss this is sabotage. I know it's a, a very general generic term, but sabotage is an important, uh, weapon in the toolbox here. And, uh, you sab, you sabotage a nation's agriculture if that is key to their existence, if they are, you know, agrarian in, in their nature, if it is one of the things where they grow their own food, you can begin to, uh, put pressure on a population by sabotaging their agriculture. Was attempted in, uh, Cuba, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, yeah. so I'm just saying. Yeah, go ahead. We attempted in Cuba whenever, well, largely when everything else didn't work, because it was covert. But in this instance, you would consider it part of asymmetric warfare. Generally, that sort of thing, especially in agriculture, is is used by a revolutionary movement because they don't have major for you know, most revolutions are not at all in the shadows. They're not denied. They want visibility, right? What what we did in Cuba is kind of strange because we were trying to do agricultural sabotage covertly. Again, we just have this temptation. And in El Salvador and in other nations, uh the revolution wants the credit for having the power to have an impact. You know, they don't have a lot of ways to publicity or to the media or to show that they're strong. And so the two things that they usually go for first, which they did in El Salvador, were A, to knock over at least a few um, regime military garrisons and seize some weapons. Okay, that's one. Uh, two, you take hostages. And this became a terrible thing throughout Latin and South America is basically you take hostages and, and make money off of them. So they turned to that and they turned to agricultural sabotage. Well, Clinton, to maintain the regime, um, actually began deploying paramilitary forces, helicopter-borne American military units to go in and involve and protect the harvest to go after some of the guerrilla groups, protect the harvest. And then it was pointed out to him that it was going to be difficult to totally shut down the guerrilla movements because there were supply chains coming in to El Salvador through Nicaragua, Nicaragua from Cuba. And that's absolutely true. There, there was no doubt that that was happening, and he couldn't deny it, and they showed him the photographs and the pictures and and so then it's sort of like well okay what do we do next we're, we're going to turn to some sanctions uh we're going to sanction nicaragua we're going to warn them so we introduced the military in del salvatore and we started putting pressure on nicaragua and they really didn't appreciate it and at that point in time it, you know, it was it was just kind of like life as usual. But then what really happened is Carter left office. Right. His successor was even more avowedly 
you know, was avowedly anti-communist. There's, there's no doubt his successor was, was proactive, forward-leaning, whatever word that you want to use to describe to, we're going to do it to them before they do it to us. Um, as I outline in the book, Reagan's national security advisor and his secretary of defense actually put out plans to start bombing Cuba, to start conducting naval operations in the Caribbean, and bombing locations in Nicaragua to break out, break down these supply lines into El Salvador. And, right. and you step back for that for a minute, kind of like, well, okay, it's kind of like, how much military, there, there are like 500 of these revolutionaries in El Salvador, and you're going to embroil the whole Caribbean in a military campaign to stop it? What are going to be the consequences? Well, actually, they didn't end up doing that, but the Salvadorian government saw where things were going and clearly saw that, you know, as far as the United States was concerned, pretty much you, whatever you need to do to stop this, you do it. And the next thing was the emergence of the death squads, the ultra right wing. Well, we're going to stop the guerrilla movement before we're going to we're going to kill them off in the cities and everywhere they're recruiting before they even get out to participate in any sabotage. And there was this massive wave of death squads forming and starting to, to execute hundreds and thousands of people, which was a pattern. <laughs> The further that this went on in the Reagan administration, all of the regimes in both Central America and South America began to realize that the Reagan-Kissinger policy was, we're going to support you. Whatever you need to do, do it. Well, see, one of the consequences from from that entire circumstance, though, Larry, to to note for people that you know might not realize it is more Salvatrucha uh then transitioning to guess what ms13 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know i'm just saying it's one of those things that just it, it always, yeah when when you go that route again as part of the consequences yeah uh, before that well we, we can we can get there in a minute because obviously yeah. the next step in it going bad was nicaragua and the contra you know the iran contra but but basically Reagan fully turning to first um, major paramilitary U.S. sanctioned operations against the Nicaraguan government. And then when Congress said, you know, we learned so much about Laos and Vietnam. You lied to us then. Nobody told us what was really going on. Looks like you're doing the same thing again. Could we just stop this? Mm-hmm. We're going to cut off all the CIA funding for these kind of covert military actions, Reagan decided, well, who needs Congress? I can do this by dictate. And he set up his own little covert operation and got his own funding and waged his own somewhat, I won't say it's private war, because as I detail in the book, he opened it up for commercial investment. I mean, I'm a Contra too. Everybody donate to the cause. We're going to we're going to unseat the Nicaraguan communist government, and and it's kind of, I won't say humorous in a way, because 
everybody went, oh, well, okay, that he's raising a lot of money, and that's, and as it turns out, he raised almost no money that way. All, but a huge amount of money came in to support the effort, and it came from Saudi Arabia and the oil nations who just cheerfully decided to do- donate to the cause because at the same time, he was enlisting them to create an anti-Soviet campaign in Afghanistan. Hmm. And the whole thing evolved into Iran-Contra. We'll take donations from our friends overseas to support covert action, and we don't even have to worry about Congress. We'll just be whatever we want to do. Of course. Well, you know, look, there's a whole thing we could get into about Iran Contra. Anyway, I, one of these days, I'd love to just do a show with you about it. In and of it, seriously, like I'm, I'm dead serious because it's one of those things that hardly anybody knows how to cover. Uh, you know, they, they know, they know to show you the stuff that, you know, here's the hearings and here's. There is so much more going on there. I mean, I know the basic explanations, and I usually don't go beyond them on air because it, it confuses people what happened there. But again, when you open up certain avenues, let's say, when it comes to shadow warfare and you start, you know, taking in other people and you start drawing in, uh, you know, either, I mean, we, we saw this in the 60s too with the, you know, the anti-communist uh, propagandists that were out there that were privateers in the field, right, that were getting CIA support, we find out later, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, some people maybe in, uh, New Orleans there who happen to be media figures. Anyway, um, just saying. It's one of those things that comes up, right? And when you're looking at something like what went on in Central and South America, quite honestly, partially due to the, uh, to the, the, the language barrier, the lack of news coverage, and the fact that there was, you know, as per usual, a limited hangout by the U.S. government. You know, we, we all know who Ali North is. You know, but do you know who James Steele was? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, there, there's a lot more to it, right? Oh, there is. And I think, again, something that very, I mean, there's been some excellent writing on it. But as far as the public knows, they've, they've just seen the bits and pieces like, oh, a meme that I find is, oh, the CIA actually funded Al-Qaeda. Uh, they started Al-Qaeda. So this is all some colossal plot that the CIA started. What they don't know, of course, is the people that funded al-Qaeda really were Saudi Arabia and the Gulf nations. And and because they were, they were providing like 80% of the money, they were able to dictate that the U.S. would not be involved in all in the selection and routing of the money. Mm-hmm. It would all be done through Pakistan, and it would be their friends in Pakistan who were the fundamentalists. And the whole thing morphed into something, you know, something again that sounded good in the beginning. Oh, we're going to kill Soviets in Afghanistan and show that they can be bloody just like we were in Vietnam. But Congress is really not going to commit the money we need to do that, so we're smart enough. We'll raise it overseas. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Well, 
you know. No, but regardless of funding, it's hard to deny the responsibility for facilitation when it comes to the Mujahideen transferring into or transforming, I should say, into Al-Qaeda later on, or at least part of it, right? I mean, I will give a counter to that, Chuck. I will tell you, and we could discuss it. The CIA was totally not involved in that at all. And as a matter of fact, when the CIA tried to insert itself, with what was happening with the Mujahideen, several CIA officers were killed, and basically the CIA was told to either butt out, you're not welcome, and the headquarters basically was so happy with what was going on in regard to the Russians that they gave up, and they turned it over to the Saudis and Pakistanians who ran the Mujahideen. Okay. Uh, I, I would still, I, I still feel as though without American involvement, you don't get this. I, I really don't feel, I, that's the way I look at it. Now, you and I could discuss that at another time, but see, again, there's, look, look at what we're talking about here, where there's facilitation going on and then the CIA's involved, but they're not really in control of stuff. You know, that's another aspect here as we go through good intentions. You know, and the idea that again, what, what, what is the need for this? Oh, it's to oppose the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Little did we know, or maybe somebody knew that, uh, what a short time later, you know, within the course of my lifetime anyway, Hey, longest standing American conflict in us history. Um, and, and to pull back just a little bit, the other thing that you run into that adds another level of detail that's hard to wade through is. When you turn covert operations to make them covert and make them denial, deniable, you have to put a lot of responsibility out into the field, um, into your field officers and your, your case officers who are running the operation. I mean, in, in regard to Nicaragua, that wasn't really true because they, they handed off the North mm-hmm. in regard to Afghanistan. They handed it off to the chief of station in Pakistan. And I actually discuss in the book, and, and you're absolutely right, I, not that somebody wasn't involved, I discuss in the book that they were being so successful that at one point in time, there was a memo sent back complaining to headquarters about the fact that they were actually giving sniper rifles plastic explosives, they were supporting training of the Mujahideen in assassinations and all sorts of dirty tricks that were, you know, were really nasty and and had never been authorized and they were passing off weapons and tools. And so that was reported back and headquarters came back to the chief of station and said, you know, nobody gave you the authority to do that. Uh, why are you doing that? You know, explain it to us. And we actually even have the memos at that point in time. The chief of station inter- issued a soft file, which was not copied to headquarters, that literally said, hey, this is working. Do it. Just don't report on it. <laughs> um, it's very similar to when, when the CIA went into Angola and headquarters said, well, yes, you're going to run – several thousand people army in Angola, but no CI officer can cross the border 
So you have to run all the logistics and all the supply chain and all the command and control. You can't go into Angola. Again, we got the memos on that saying, yeah, you can't do that. So we're going to do it, and we're going to put dozens of officers inside Angola in the field, and we're just not going to report it. So it's you got deniability. We're doing it. We're not doing it. Headquarters doesn't know we're doing it. Um, so I'm, I'm not implying that things didn't go off the rails in terms of sometimes it was, yes, we enabled it, and we enabled it in the field when we denied that we were any doing any such thing in Washington, D.C. No, fair enough. And look, I, I have a question of my own and then a question from somebody in uh, my Skype, <coughs> if you don't mind. And my, my question is uh, regarding this idea that, yeah, here's a memo saying, look, just don't report on it. Uh, you, you can guarantee that there were plenty of times where things were still being done and somebody made a phone call and said, don't report on it, and there's no memo. So, I mean, I'm just saying, you you got to imagine that. I mean, you can't prove it, but uh, you got to imagine that when, you know, you, you hear about, oh, well, actually we had an issue where a bunch of stuff was stolen, you know, and you, you think about the amount of material they're talking about being stolen, and you're wondering how many trucks it took to steal it. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh. There, yeah. there's, oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. There's always, you can, I mean, and the classic best denial of all is, Yes, we were working with those people, and yeah, we were supporting them, but we never told them to do fill in the blank. Right, of course, uh, as per usual. You know, deniability is there. I mean, look, we trained them, but we didn't tell them to, you know, actually engage in operations. I mean, <laughs> you know, just say. Uh, so the question uh, from the, uh, the the guy in Skype here is um, – da, da, da. oh, do, does the does the author you are speaking to cover Libya? In shadow warfare, I cover Libya, not Libya in this century. The first round with Libya by Reagan, uh, the the Libyan involvement uh, in putting its forces into neighboring neighboring countries, mm -hmm. and the U.S. effort to counter them with covert action which eventually led to the bombing of Libya. But, yeah, I cover I cover a good deal of that era of Libya, Libya involvement. I don't cover the fall of Gaddafi. Well, no, but there's plenty to cover before that anyway. And uh, you, have, oh, yeah. you have discussed it elsewhere, though. So. Oh, yeah. So I do go into that. And, again, it's interesting because that's, that's something that almost nobody talks about. Um, which is Yemen. And in any event, it's called, for those who want it, a, a, it's called New Enemies. New Enemies. <laughs> right. Well, we just couldn't pass up. Anybody that was the Russians were selling equipment to, we just couldn't pass up. And this gets you into all the, um, you know, the, all the who was working with Qaddafi and who was bombing who and, yeah, that's covered in shadow warfare. Okay, no problem. One other live question. Now, we, now we've encouraged them. <laughs> Is uh, do, does uh, shadow warfare cover the uh, interplay between Pakistan and India during the conflict over Kashmir? No, that it does not cover. 
Okay, fair enough. No, because honestly, I I only know about the um, uh, you know the the uh, the, the standard military action there, uh, that that went on, which a lot of people don't know about at all. But uh, you know, at, at certain point, there were uh, conventional um, clashes between the Pakistanis and the Indians with tanks and all kinds of stuff. That uh, that that. Largest ta- tank battle since the Soviets and Germans in World War II was between Pakistan and India. But I'm with you, Chuck. I I know about the military action, but it's not it's not something I dug into that I would be able in you know the the backstory and context. I I don't know well enough to even comment on. Well, no, and it's also a, an interesting story, just the creation of the nation of Pakistan as well. Uh, but it, it is a, it, you know interesting historically, but. Uh, I don't know enough about it to comment on it in this context. So, uh, so, so there you have it. I actually, you got you got two guys telling you that we're not quite sure what to say here. Uh, but uh, yeah, go ahead. I can't expand on that since you since it brings up India. What I do cover in Shadow Warfare mm-hmm. is the CIA um, CIA activities against the Chinese in um, Nepal and in. Uh, you know, in in that transborder region, and how we inserted guerrillas to, and trained guerrillas to fight the uh, the Chinese mm-hmm. incursions uh, before they took over Tibet. So I, I do cover the whole China, Tibet, India, U.S. covert operations conflict, including the amazing way that we managed to supply air air supply into Tibet from our fields at Anderson Base and in in Japan and in in at Anderson in the Philippines. It's it's a fascinating story. So I do cover that as far as India is concerned. Okay, fair enough. So I I'll ask you this question now and try and try and shut my mouth as much as I can for the next little while because I, I I need to hear from you on this. Um, what is it that uh, that we are missing so far in this conversation to provide a proper overview of this book? Because I, I know it's been a while since I read it, uh, but I know there is a lot in there, as there is a lot in a lot of Larry Hancock's books. You, you don't get something that's light on information and historical reality. As I said, they all do stand alone because there are great explanations about, I'll put it this way, Larry, and I know you'll probably be able to put it much more eloquently, but the fact is that when Larry lays out a subject, he gives you the mechanics. Uh, if you are vaguely familiar with the topic, you can step into one of Larry's books and learn a great deal, not only about the historical facts, figures, and, uh, uh, you know, individuals that are involved, okay? But, uh, but also about the way things work. Uh, you know, the, the actual, this is how this works. I mean, you know, he doesn't spend a huge amount of time, uh, uh, baby, you know, spoon feeding this to you, but enough time on it so that you understand what the topic is you're wrapping your head around. Okay. Which is not often done by a lot of authors in this field. Okay. There's a reason why I love Larry's work. Um, so, you know, and Larry-Hancock.com again, is his website. Go there, check out the blog and the many books. Not one is a bad book as far as I'm concerned. And I've either read part of or all of all of them. Can't say that about too many authors, to be honest with you. Once they get above, you know, two, three, four books, 
a lot of times I fall off, guys, because, <laughs> you know, they're putting me to sleep. They're not showing me anything new. Uh, every time I've cracked open a book by Larry Hancock, I have learned absolutely new things. Can't wait until we get into Unidentified. That's going to be a fun part of this. But anyway, stick around for that as we go through the series, the uh, Larry Hancock collection on the Ocelli effect, because telling you that's going to be uh, worthy of a two-hour discussion <laughs> again even though i've already discussed it on the show um and and i'm appreciating the fact that we're getting to revisit uh, some of these really great works from before so telling you now they're all worthy of purchase and uh paying attention to while you read them okay so larry what what have we not covered in the basic overview here i mean is is there Something really unique that we haven't talked about? Is there uh, something that you found remarkable as you were going through? Again, this is um, purely subjective, but what what are we missing in the overview here? What we're really missing is, is, is fascinating to me because almost everybody doesn't talk about this. What, what we're really, as you said, Chuck, I like to talk about write about the mechanics of how these things work, you know, and, and because it's not, once you get into it, it's not totally mysterious. I mean, there are protocols and procedures to follow. These are government agencies. People report to other people. Documents are made other than the ones that are only kept in the local desk drawer about what we're doing that we don't tell headquarters. Um, you know, it, it's, once you get a handle on it, you can write about the mechanics. But what everybody seems to miss is, uh, and, and you kind of introduced it in this way, uh, when you talk about, you know, somebody evil twirling their mustaches, how do we get to the point? I mean, these are shadow warfare. Our, our warfare, we have a standard set of legal code, unified code of military justice. If, if you put on a uniform or don't put on, but if you, become a an active military member in a declared war, you can kill people. You can kill lots of people. You can virtually do anything you need to do to win that conflict within the rules and code of the Uniform Military Justice, and you won't be convicted of anything. And when you go to war, you do have to kind of indemnify people. Yes, we're going to war, we're going to kill people, and we're going to kill them in large numbers. We're going to tom- drop atomic weapons, and no, it's you're covered because the UNCMJ covers you. Um, you you are no longer a private citizen under domestic law and civil law. You are a member of the military services. What about shadow warfare? What about intelligence officers and CIA officers and uh, you know, these people who are expected to do military actions to, if they sometimes they get involved in killing people themselves, sometimes they're running assets and surrogates who are doing the killing, but they're definitely involved in a number of activities which under civil law would be considered crimes, mm-hmm. whether it involves smuggling of anything, not just drugs, drugs, weapons, contraband. Uh, it's real hard to equip your guerrilla force surrogates in a regime change operation without smuggling. Mm-hmm. You got to do that. Uh, and it, it, 
sometimes amazes me when people, it's not like, oh, you mean the CI officer was associating with drug smugglers? Well, who is it that knows how to get stuff illegally into countries through customs? Well, yeah, hang on right there. Yeah, hang on right there because another live question comes in and it it fits perfectly with exactly where you are. And I know they didn't even hear what you just said. it, uh, they're they're asking, you know, why it is that I am not focusing on the criminal underworld being employed in these actions because often when I speak about this myself, uh, I do linger on that a bit. Larry does not linger on that as much. Um, I, I guess it's because he's not as judgmental about it. <laughs> it's it's just a pragmatic thing that happens. Uh, I know it, I know he's touched upon it in many of his works, you know, where we're well aware that uh, various agencies have employed people that were basically part of organized criminal organizations because guess what Larry just said right there? You got to employ smugglers. You got to get stuff smuggled in. Practicality. Who do you hire? Well, you hire the people that already know how to do that. You need killers. Well, who do you hire in some cases? You know, you need killers that need to be able to fit in. You're not going to be able to send in the, the, the Navy SEALs to go get this done, okay? Who do you send in? Well, if you can hire some local criminals who don't care who they kill and you can pay them, not a problem. <laughs> you know, I, th- th- this is the thing about it is that it's not about the criminality of it. It's interesting that uh, there's always this moral high ground claimed about these things. But when it comes down to it, it is who can get the job done. So you need you need gun runners. Well, who are your gun runners that know the territory? The people that have been running guns. I mean, how how hard is that to to get your mind around? You know, and yeah, I linger on it a bit because I find it fascinating that you'll see, uh, you know, our government react to certain organized criminals, you know, as as if they are the pariahs of society, and simultaneously. They will um, work in concert with them to achieve their objectives. So I like to point out hypocrisy. Uh, it, it's not necessarily a deep, deep fascination with Larry sometimes, but he points it out. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm sorry, Larry, I interrupted you there, but uh, please argue with no. whatever I just said. No, I, and, and I think I do track it all the way through. I, it just, it's, it's tradecraft to me. I have to look at it that way objectively. What, what is, what are the practices? What are the protocols? How do these people operate? And in shadow warfare, the first example I give going back to Burma, which we mentioned briefly earlier, mm-hmm. you had to get tons of supplies and essentially create a guerrilla army that you're going to send into South China. The mm-hmm. Burmese government is neutral. The government, Burmese government is not excited about China going, oh, okay, you just invaded us. We're going to walk in and take over your whole country, which we could do this afternoon in a heartbeat, you know. So they're not really for this plan. So how's the CIA going to handle it? CIA is going to have to set up uh, shipping lines to carry weapons and supplies. They're going to have to set up air supply drops to do the same thing. They're going to have to do it in a way that they don't get caught. So they are smuggling. Everything they're going to do from that point on is illegal. they got to get stuff into Burma illegally. And on some occasions, they've got to get some stuff out illegally, like people. Okay. Um, so they do that. So who do they 
Who are they contracted with? As you, you just said, who, who was smuggling what in Burma before they showed up and what after they left? Right. We all know what comes out of the Golden Triangle, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the people that they got in touch with. And, you know, and if they needed to buy 500 mules to haul stuff in and they had to use these people to haul them in, guess what's going to come out on those 500 mules? Yeah, well, and, and it's not like there might be other things that come along. Uh, you know, another thing is you got to move personnel around and you got to be unnoticed. So who knows how to do that? Maybe other people who know how to smuggle human beings, which is a specialized trade. Okay. I'm just, I'm just well, taking this pragmatically, Larry. Am I right or wrong? You're absolutely right. And that's the way the world works. Like it. Or if you decide you're going to engage in that, you just embedded yourself with some really illegal, I mean, and it ramps up from, yeah, just smuggling heroin to smuggling people. But, and in the end, I, I cover it in the book, where all that ends is when that whole effort failed, what you had established was a series of shipping companies uh, and and air country companies going into the Republic of China, going into Taiwan, who would over the next few years all be prosecuted by Burma for drug smuggling. Right. Uh, but like, like I said, and I don't want to make light of it, but when you step across the borders and engage in something that's illegal and you start setting up a shipping network to get stuff in, human nature is going to dictate that something valuable comes out. And it's I can trace it from Burma to Nicaragua with um, – Oliver North, knowing full where, well, fully aware that some of the aerial contractors he was using were smuggling right. dope back in, uh, either by air or by shrimp boats. Uh, and I, I, but I, you know, all I can say is that is the way it works. In Afghanistan, right. when you buy 2,000 Jeeps, or actually Toyotas, right. and use them to shift stuff into the Mahujadeen and send it right into the area that's one of the biggest poppy-growing regions of the globe, guess what's going to come back? Um, yeah, no kidding. And, I mean, and, and also, when you when you think about it from the criminal's perspective, uh, you know, who says, well, look, I've got now some Marines to guard my shipments or I've got cover, you know, where they're going to accept me going through checkpoints that they wouldn't normally accept – uh, let me take advantage of that. You know, yeah, I'm moving people in the back of this truck. Let's just think theoretically. Why not line the uh, side panels with, oh, I don't know, you know, heroin, cocaine. Depends on where you are. Because I now have, what, military protection for my dope shipments. I mean, you, who wouldn't take advantage of that if that's your business? I mean, I'm just saying. You, you can always find somebody that's, I mean, just like. It's not like we don't have crime domestically. You can always find somebody that's willing to make money on the side to overlook something. Uh, and, you know, when you track this back to Laos, again, something I cover in the book in great detail, you know, you're, you're supporting the Hmong people in Laos. And they are your major – tens of thousands of them are your assault troops to try to hold back the local communist guerrillas and – the North Vietnamese. Right. 
The Hamans, other than some very primitive slash and burn agriculture, for centuries, their only product has been heroin. Do you think that when you start shipping, you know, you get contract with Air America to start shipping them supplies and transporting their people from point A to point B and evacuating them when they get an outpost overrun? Certainly, you're going to see that cargo going on um, aircraft. You're going to see it going on jeeps. You're going to – it's – it's going to go. It's going to come back. And that was investigated. And I support and I report some of the investigations. And the real problem that you run into, even when you crack those drug lines, is it's the field, typical field officer problem. These are my only assets. Mm-hmm. If you want me to obey the same laws that we have in the United States with these people, it's not going to work. So what do you want me to do? Do we just pull out of here and stop this program, or do I just look the other way? And very clearly, those people weren't prosecuted. In some cases, they prosecuted the indigenous folks, but because they have this catch-22. Our program is going to fail if you ask me to enforce the laws. What do you want me to do? And in some instances, I will tell you, and I cover in the book, the way this is handled is there's actually a memorandum of agreement between the Justice Department and the CIA that happened in Nicaragua. There's actually an agreement that says justice gives a waiver that says we will not prosecute any of your assets that you're using in logistics and uh, in this effort. Um, because we understand it will jeopardize your operation. And I cite two or three of these memoranda of understanding, which essentially say not only won't we prosecute your people because they have, we understand they have to do this to get the job done, right. we won't prosecute the people they're using. So the fact that it's going on is absolutely no secret, and it always comes down to those, um, you know, is the project worth it? And if the project is worth it, we're going to do whatever is necessary. So I guess, Chuck, to answer your question, I probably – I describe it, but this is one of the basic catch-22s in the book that I, I write about that other people don't write about. You know, what are what are the legal accommodations that have to be made to support your personnel – conducting these operations you know you'll stand up and say we've got a war on drugs uh we've also got a program to oust the nicaraguan government we've got a war on drugs we want the russians out of afghanistan and when they come into conflict guess which guess which you give up you give up the war on drugs right and and, you know and and eventually this quite frankly, leads to, you know, the the thing that was a headline for a minute where U.S. troops are guarding poppy fields. Because, again, same thing sort of applies here. You know, we destabilize the local population if we take away what it is they're doing at that time, right? So, you know, here you go. They're your your only assets. So what do you want to do? Do you want them still fighting on your side? Or do you want them to, you know, do you want – 
or do you want them to continue to be there viably from an economic <laughs> Well, that, you want. <laughs> well, that was that was the thing. I remember the night of the live news reports from Afghanistan. You know, the Northern Alliance is moving in, and I remember saying to myself, "Aren't those the same people that are basically funded by heroin? They're our allies." Oh well, I wonder what that's going to mean in the next couple of years. I mean, I literally saw that happen, even though I I wasn't you know fully aware of a lot of stuff, and I went, "Those guys basically, yeah, they're they're everything." comes from that anyway larry we're down to the last you know five six minutes here so um you know i'd like to give you the opportunity to close out this discussion any way you see fit um but again i advise people to uh to buy and read shadow warfare uh again just the second in this series and believe me there's a lot more to come uh, the Larry Hancock collection on Ocelli, on the Ocelli effect, Ocelli.com, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, uh, we also advertise the book In Denial, which, uh, I, I gotta tell you is well worth read as well. <laughs> and we'll get to that one eventually, but as for now, Shadow Warfare, yes, it's a couple years old, but eerily, as much of Larry's work is, more relevant as time goes on. So, um, go ahead, Larry, close it out any way you see fit. Yeah, I, I just, for potential readers, the two things that we really discuss, didn't discuss was I also go in the book. I talked about the U.S. military operating under the, the UCMJ. So what I cover in the book are the laws and regulations which allow covert operations. They're national security directives. And in essence, they were developed in 2021. We're still working off legal code from 1947 and that 1947 code said basically anything we do is legal we have to be as nasty and dirty as the commies so as long as it's justified under these national security regulations you guys we're at war it's shadow war we're not going to declare it but we're going to give you the legal authority to do what you need to do which which a legal authority that extends beyond the UCMJ. In fighting the Cold War, you can actually do things that we would not allow our troops to do in warfare. Um, so that's in the book. The other thing in the, that's in the book is how this all evolved in the 21st century, what role the CIA plays now in regard to the Joint Special Operations Command and how we have changed the form of how we conduct shadow warfare and why we justify uh, military operations like the the actually the capture and, and killing of bin Laden under national security covert warfare rather than the UCMJ. We we've essentially decided, yeah, if we have to be military, we'll be military, but we'll authorize it <laughs> under the under the national security code to protect them. Uh, and which is, is, that's the way the game is played today. So I go into the evolution over the last 20 or so years after 9-11. That's something we didn't talk about. No, and there you go. That, that is, uh, extremely important. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I, I can't wait until we get into JSOC, but I also can't wait until we get into certain domestic operations. Uh, and, and the way the national security state reacts 
to various things that uh, a lot of people have, I don't know, seem, seem to have totally forgotten about. Uh, you know, and, and it's not all that distant in, in our history. Um, and, and why do I say that? Because quite often when we see certain things happen that are clearly part of covert actions, I mean, like, like the stuff that went on in Niger, which nobody wants to talk about at all. Um, you know, clearly these were not, (laughs) there's something going on here. And when we talk about the fall of Gaddafi, there's other things going on here. And I know we touched upon that a bit uh, in in discussing surprise attack. (laughs) But, um, I mean, there is just so much to get to here and uh, so much that you can learn. And and by the by, we we haven't even begun to think about the just political assassinations focus, which is a whole other subset here. So... Again, the collected works of Larry Hancock are extremely important uh, and uh, quite influential as to my views on many things. Uh, I'm not going to say that Larry and I don't have an occasional difference of opinion about certain interpretations, because um, we do. And, and you heard that when I started discussing the Mujahideen. Oh, I lay a lot more responsibility on certain people and the fact that we don't have information uh, about a great many things that obviously occurred. Uh, during that evolution, but you may hear about that in a future show. So we will continue on with this, but as I said, tonight's focus was on shadow warfare. We did mention some other great stuff that's going to come up in the national security section of the collected works of Larry Hancock, but I really appreciate you uh, having the patience to go back over uh, many of these things with me, Larry. Take questions and, uh, you know, quite frankly, just go, go through all the stuff you've already written a while ago, seemingly, uh, cause a, a whole lot of stuff you've written since. Um, and man, it's just, uh, really a, a privilege and a pleasure to do this with you, Larry. It's a good exercise to help preserve my memory. You know, at my advanced age, I need to go through things every once in a while. Oh, yeah, well, it, what, what, what's the old phrase? You've forgotten more than a lot of people know about this stuff. Uh, so true. Larry-Hancock.com, once again, is his website. Of course, you guys know my website. If you've gotten to it, it's real easy to remember. Ocelli.com, of course. But that's not the point of tonight's show. Uh, wanted to talk about this book and continue the discussion about the Larry Hancock collection, and we will do so in the weeks to come. Probably two Thursdays from now, we'll get back to it again, unless I'm taking a break. Meanwhile, thanks for listening. Thanks for, well, having me around. And, Larry, thank you for doing this with me. I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect. Good night.